We are in Isaiah 41 today, verses 1 through 20. If you would open your Bibles to Isaiah 41, verses 1 through 20. What's going on in your life right now? Is it uh, good or is it bad? It's a little hard to say as a Christian sometimes if what's going on is totally good or totally bad. Uh, our God is God. Uh, he is sovereign. Our God is our God. He has chosen us. He works in us. He works through us. He works on us. So, uh, you know, on one hand, He could be giving you just clear victory today over something, and, and it just, it's just the gift of God, and you know it. On the other hand, things can be going bad, and this is where it gets a little bit of a disequilibrium because maybe that bad is good. Maybe God is working on you. Maybe he is working on me. So who can assess whether life is fully good or fully bad at any given one moment? God may wish to humble us, to prepare us, to use us in the future. And as we look at today's text, uh, fear not for I am your God is a central theme for Israel. Do not be afraid. I am your God. And it is with that idea that I open this text, recognizing that this was written well before the time at which it addresses, a time at which Cyrus was going to destroy Babylon and free Israel from their exile. And, and it applies to all the generations leading up to that. It applies to us today, much after that. And uh, so we're going to learn about the fear of God. We're going to compare how the coastlands cope with demise and problems. The coastlands, by the way, as we read today's text, those would be the nations along the Mediterranean, along the western shoreline of the Mediterranean, going all the way up uh, uh, along the north, uh, across Turkey, almost to Italy. And those are the coastlands. And, and, and they are pagans. They, they, they see the bad news coming with Cyrus coming out of the east. Uh, so they're going to respond one way, but Israel, in verse 8, is going to be addressed, and they're going to be encouraged to respond another way not being afraid because God is their God. Uh, you have one from the east being mentioned today, and that is Cyrus. And you have one who is empowering Cyrus, and that is God. Let's look as we uh, look here. Let's read in uh, verse 1. I am in Isaiah 41 in verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes with the anvil. Saying to, of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. 
I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness, the desert, a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness, the desert, the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts and lives, in our midst, that people around the world could look and see and know that you are God and that you did this. Lord, I pray that you would carry us through the trials of life. Cause us, Father, to not be afraid. Cause us, Lord, to place our confidence not in ourselves. We too are worms. But help us, Lord, to put our confidence in you who helps us. God, help us to be patient. Help us to know that you may desire to change us before you change our neighbor. God, I pray that you would lead us today, that you would do a work in our hearts that that prepares us to walk with you for a lifetime. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin our study, you can follow in the outlines if you'd like to. God stirs up a superpower in the east against the coastlands as they turn to their gods in a panic. And they fashion idols. That's what's going on in these early verses. It's a little bit confusing. Uh, You have people attacking you and you're calling the goldsmiths. Uh, Are we making jewelry? Not exactly. Uh, We are making idols. We are appealing to our gods. Uh, Look at verse number one, if you would, as God summons the coastlands to a courtroom uh, hearing. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Okay, so he says, uh, listen to me in silence. Now, when, when he says listening, he's summoning them. And when he demands silence, he is demanding the due respect that the judge of the universe is due. It, it just, it, he demands that there be respect. And so they come, they listen, they're in silence, and then he strengthens them. And he invites them to converse. He invites them to speak their case. The question before the court is this. Who rules the world? There is a tremendous king, Cyrus the Great, Cyrus of Persia, who is coming from the east, 
and he is trampling every nation in his path. He is trampling nations he's never been to before and continuing on to the next nation unharmed. Who is causing this? Look at verse number two. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He, God, gives the nations before him, Cyrus, so that he, Cyrus, tramples kings underfoot. He, Cyrus, makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He, Cyrus, pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed this and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am. God wants the coastlands to know that he is the sovereign of the universe. If you don't like maps, go to sleep for just a moment, okay? Um, Basically, uh, Persia is over here. Uh, Jerusalem is here. The coastlands are up here. These are all pagan nations. And, And this, everything in color ends up being the kingdom of Persia here. So, so this man, Cyrus, was a great man, and, and he went on a rampage, and God blessed him along his way. Israel at the time were in captivity, captivity in Babylon, and they were actually liberated by King Cyrus. King Cyrus was a breath of fresh air as far as kings and antiquities went. He would restore people to their land. He would even allow them to restore worship. He allowed them to rebuild the temple. Okay, so um, early on, I mean, Isaiah is writing this, uh, you know, over a century before it happens. Isaiah is dead and gone by the time these things happen. Isaiah is even writing about things that are yet to happen. In, 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 in next week's chapter, chapter 42, uh, we're going to see the Messiah prophesied. So Isaiah is just, uh, just talking about future events here, giving comfort to his people Israel, and he's talking about an event that would be over a century past his death. And so Christians before the time of Cyrus are reading this. And they're not going to enjoy the liberation of Cyrus, but they are to take comfort in God's word that God is in control of the events of the universe. It's long past for you and me. We're not living this out, but we're to take comfort that God did control those events and that God will control events in the future. And so that is the strength that we see here in this text. By the way, this week's uh, text talks about him coming from the east. Next week, we're going to be in chapter, uh, the same chapter, verse 25. It talks about him coming from the north. And it's like, oh, is that a new person? Uh, No, it's the same Cyrus. The, The difference is we're addressing Israel. And so as Cyrus comes up the Fertile Crescent, which is the only way you could travel, this is too mountainous and dry. Um, you always travel the Fertile Crescent. He will descend from the north when he comes to address Israel. And so when you see that next week in next week's test, just, just understand you've got east, north. It's the same king by my understanding. So now let's get into these coastlands and what they're doing in verses 5 through 7 because they're afraid. They've got this king that is just mowing over every nation. And so what are they doing? Look at verse number 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. They're afraid. Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. They're not making jewelry. They are making idols. And he who smooths it with a hammer, uh, uh, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. So be strong. It is good. We're doing good work here. We're building good idols to worship, to call upon our gods to deliver us now. It's good. It's good. And then see this last phrase? The Bible just has this way of just tweaking the whole situation. 
Look at that last phrase. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. What's the concern? Your God could fall over. You build your idol, you put up your God, but you better prop him up, you better protect him, because your God, who you're looking to deliver you, he can't even stand on his own. And it just is no good when you're worshiping a God and he falls over. It, it just, it's not good for the God, it's not good for you. So make sure you nail, you, you nail him up so he cannot be moved. Same thing happened last week. Look at chapter 40, verse number 18. To whom will you liken God, or to what likeness will you compare him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. What are the chains for? They're to hold it up. Keep reading. He who is too impoverished for an idol chooses wood that will not rot and seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. This is the problem with idols throughout antiquity. They kept falling over. And it's just so embarrassing when your God, who's going to deliver you, falls over. The Bible is just so skillful at digging into the heart of our foolishness and our problems. And you see, we don't worship idols anymore. In antiquities, you had idolatry worship, and they had the temple. And you would go there, and you would have idolatrous feasts. What was that? That was gluttony and drunkenness. And you had the temple prostitutes. What was that? Well, this, this God, uh, we would say, was a God of fertility gods. You would engage with the temple prostitutes in order to encourage fertility and the spring rains and the crops. Idolatry is just an excuse for mankind to do what he wants to do. Uh, they, they burned their children to idols and they sacrificed babies to idols. And if you go back and through the archaeological digs, you will find deformed babies and females as the vast majority of the skeletons that are left. It was abortion. It was people doing what they wanted to do and they used their idol as an excuse. Well, we're Americans. We're in the 21st century. We're well beyond idols. But we still want the same things. Gluttony, drunkenness, sex, abortion. We just skip the formality of forming an idol and we go right after what we want. And we make that our idol. The things we want, the the security, the, the prosperity, we just make that our idol and we go for it. Dispensing with all of the superstitions about God's. Whether your follies in, involve greed for money or sexual lust or if your idol is pride of self or material possessions, the Bible identifies here a troubling folly at the core of it all that these are really unable to give you what you are seeking and they're fragile. Think about men and women who make their body their God, who find their identity and their purpose in having a great physique. There's just one nagging problem with that. Time. We all know where our bodies are going, do we not? I mean, if you want to plan on the very best body many years from now, just go to the nursing home, pick out the best-looking model you can find, and hope for that. Hope for that. When it comes to personal pride and physical accomplishment, time is not on anyone's side unless you're like 12 years old. Okay, time's on your side for another decade, all right? But once you hit the 30s, you're going to have to work at it. In your 40s, you've got to quit eating the stuff you want to eat most of the time. 
50s, 60s, and 70s, man, there's just things that come up that have nothing to do with what you're eating or what you're doing. It has to do with aging. So the troubling detail about our idols is that we've got to prop them up and they just can't stand on their own and, and worshiping your physique will not last. Oh, but maybe yours is, problem isn't your physique. Maybe it's material things, lots of toys, lots of properties. I've got a few words for you. <laughs> As someone who's had a lot of toys and a lot of properties, maintenance, storage, depreciation, rot, rust, property taxes, assessments, those toys are all fun to a point, but it doesn't get too long where you have too many and they own you. And you will not find satisfaction. You'll just find that you own a bunch of junk. And as you get old, somebody has to clean out your estate and carry it away or throw it away. The Bible is helping us here. It's pointing out this nagging detail about needing to prop up our idols, our false gods. And our modern idols are no better they have this nagging little tendency to tell you they cannot make you happy. They cannot make you satisfied. And the sooner we recognize it, the better. We find our satisfaction in God alone. And he does not begrudge you some nice things. Uh, God is a gracious God and he blesses us mightily. And, and so here's a question for you. Um, do you hide your things from God? Do you defend your things from God? Well, it's okay that I did this because this, 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 this. Or do you spread your things out before God and say, wow, thank you. I, I just, with open heart and clear conscience, I am overwhelmed at your kindness to me. I enjoy this greatly because it comes from your hand. See, God not only gives us the ability to enjoy all, thi uh, the, all things to enjoy, he gives us the ability to enjoy all things. Uh, you, you can have everything in the world and not enjoy it without the gift of God in your life working to help you enjoy it. So do you hide your things from God and fail to find satisfaction? Or do you receive what you have from God and give praise and just delight, being satisfied in his gifts? To me, this is one of the differences between pornography with self-gratification, those two always go together, versus what happens in a godly marriage. Porn and self-gratification leave you less than nothing. Uh, you get done with the deed, something just happened, but it left you more empty, desperate, and dirty than when you began. That is so not like a godly marriage. You get done with the deed in a godly marriage and you are praising God and you are satisfied and fulfilled. It is an act of worship for your, uh, 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 ascribing worth to your spouse as well as worship to your God. It, it's just amazing. The difference. In verse 7, I love how these craftsmen are assuring each other, it's good, it's good, it's good. Cyrus is coming, but we got some really nice idols. It's good. It's going to be good. You know, that reminds me a lot of atheists who assure themselves that there is no God. You know, you look at the order in the universe. You look at the miracle of the human eyeball, optics that we cannot match with camera lenses, the best lenses. Uh, you, the best camera sensor cannot read sunlight and shadow the way the human eyeball can read sunlight and shadow. It's got a greater dynamic range of, of reading light than any sensor mankind can invent today. And yet, the evolutionists just assure us, well, that just happened by accident. And that's why we survived as a species, because we happen to have this wonderful eyeball, along with many other features in the human body. But just taking that one design, it is just so amazing. 
But they say, well, you know, yeah, a lot of eyeballs formed throughout, you know, ancient history, and, 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 and the, the, the weak ones didn't survive, and this one did, and it just happens to be designed. And, it, and you happen to have two opposing eyeballs. You don't have one here and one randomly poking out of the side of your head, two opposing ears, two opposing nostrils. I mean, all of this design, it's just, it was all random, it was all chance, and it just all happened to be in that place. But, you know, you had so many iterations of biology that finally something worked out and survived, and voila, and it's good, it's good, there's no God, there's no God. We're in a universe full of stars, full of amazing energy, amazing energy. The scientific laws of thermodynamics say that energy is never, neither being created nor being destroyed, but it is changing forms, a state of entropy going from organized to disorganized. And you ask the evolutionists, where did energy come from? Well, the Big Bang or something. I mean, I'm sure there's answers. But it's good, it's good. How did all this energy form into these organized stars when, when entropy teaches that energy falls apart? Well, you know, it, it, it's just different. How, how does life come from non-life? How do you get life from non-life when the law of biogenesis says you can't do that? Well, it's good, the Big Bang, or I don't know, something, something happened where just life happened. But it's good, there's no God. These things just randomly happen. And you know what else happened in 1500 A.D.? 1506, I think it was, a man named Leonardo da Vinci. He was taking paint, and he was dumping it from a 10-story building. And he dumped it, and it kind of looked like, yeah, you know, it looked like a design. He saw an oval, and it kind of looked like a human face, and he kept dumping. And He dumped thousands and thousands of buckets of paint until he finally ended up with this. <laughs> and it just, here's the most amazing thing. But it's good. There's no, you know, there's, there's no brush. There was no artist. The software of DNA, it's, it's all just happy, random chance. You know something? How many buckets of paint would you have to dump before you would have something that just roughly resembled a, a happy face? I, you know, I would think you'd have to dump millions or trillions of buckets of paint before you round up to something that just happened to resemble a happy face. Okay? So if we say it's one in a million chance. Okay, so you got the numerator one. The denominator, a million. Okay, how many times do you have to drop paint to get a Mona Lisa? Well, the evolutionists would say you just change the denominator, that number on the bottom. It's, it's a lot more than one in a million. It's more than one in a trillion. It's more than one in a trillion trillion. And what do you think the number would be? How many buckets of paint would I have to drop before I came up with a Mona Lisa? And understand, you're getting a head start because you're starting with paint. You're starting with the actual material that ends up. Creation starts with nothing. What kind of a denominator do you need? Let me tell you something. It's not good. If you don't believe there's a God in the universe, it is not good for you. You can assure one another all you want to. So pagans paganize. There's an enemy, so they turn to their gods. What about Israel? Point number two here this morning. Israel finds strength in God because he chose them. And he commits to them. I would suggest to you, you find strength in God because he chose you. If you're trusting Jesus as your Savior today, he chose you. He did that. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor can he, for they are spiritually discerned. So if we all started out as natural men and natural women, where do we get spiritual discernment? God moved first. That's what I mean when I say God chose us. Okay? He moved first. You were a natural man. You were a natural woman. You could not understand these things without God moving first. So look at verse number 8. But you, 
Israel, my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. You who I took from the ends of the earth. Now, let's just stop here real quick. Look how he identifies Israel. My servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. So uh, God identifies first that I have chosen you. And then second, he says, you are the offspring of Abraham, who is my friend. That calls forward God's commitment to Abraham, that he would make of him a great nation, a chosen people. And, and so Israel is chosen by God, and God is faithful to his promises to Abraham. Now, you might be sitting here as a Gentile today saying, well, what do I care? I'm not a Jew, and so there's nothing there for me. No, no, no. It's important to you that God keeps his promises. We want God to be faithful to Abraham and his promises to Abraham because we have a promise-keeping God. And so he approaches Israel saying, I have chosen you. You are the offspring of my friend, Abraham. That's amazing, my friend. Now, this next verse, I don't know when this happened in history, and I'm wondering if it has happened yet. Prophecy, when you go to prophecy, do not expect point one, point two. Do not expect a timeline every time you open up prophetic books. Prophecies, it's kind of like standing in this mountain range and you're atop one peak and you're looking at a peak there and a peak there and a peak there. It's, it's, it's giving you what will be on the to- in total. It's not giving you a sequence of events. Uh, the, the Bible is not concerned with giving you tomorrow's newspaper so that you can call the shots before they're hit. Uh, the Bible is giving you a picture of what God is going to accomplish to, uh, to glorify himself. And one of those things is he's going to draw Israel from all the nations, not just Babylon's, but from the four corners of the world. Look at verse, um, verse number 9. You who I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. And here we get to a beautiful verse, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Now, there is something to hold on to as a Christian today. Not to be afraid. Why? Because God is with you. If you've come to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, He chose you. He is with you. He is your God. He promises strength. You know, there are trials that, I, that, that we enter into in life, and what do you do? I mean, you could see the trial is coming, and it looks bad. You pray, God, strengthen me to glorify you. I know it could be bad for the next several months or a few years or several years, but God, here's what I'm asking. When I look back on this a thousand years from now, help me to praise you for how you carried me through this. And give me the strength to endure in a way that honors you. He said, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It's his right hand. It's his dominant hand. He's, he's not, uh, you're not getting God's second best. You're getting his righteous right hand that stands for you. So based on these promises and the fact that he is God, do not be afraid. And then again, here's some more promises to Israel that I don't think has happened yet in history. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. 
Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Victory lies in Israel's future. Now, it's interesting that God calls them a worm, and that's quite controversial. But God is going to transform a worm into a crushing military force. Verse number 14, again, I don't think this has happened in history. I think this is yet to happen. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. And the wind shall carry them away. And the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. Um, He calls them a worm. We have a hymn that used to have the word worm in it. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Worm theology has fallen on hard times in our self-esteem culture. So if you open up the uh, hymn book in front of you, you will not find that word there. You will find that he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I. Well, at least they, pre- they preserve the idea that we are sinners, that we are fallen creatures. But worm theology has found, uh, fallen on hard times. I'm not sure if that's the product of good theology. It might be more a product of modern self-esteemization, if that's a word. Um, in verse number 8, God called them servants. Literally, that's slaves. It's to, uh, uh, Moitier says, he said, that is to say a person without position or rights. In verse 14, he calls them a worm. So slaves, worm. Uh, you know, in, in, in verse 1 of the next chapter, he calls the Messiah a slave. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So, in verses 8 through 13, these slaves have no fear whatsoever because they serve a great master. In verses 14 through 16, this worm is going to receive help to crush mountains. Well, then God promises this in our last point. He promises to answer the pleas of the most needy in Israel. Now, this passage has very poetic language. And I've had at least one teacher in seminary say that I'm silly to be expecting literal streams in the desert. But I am expecting literal streams to flow in the deserts of Israel from this passage at some point in the future. Um, I, I would agree with him that there is a metaphor here that God refreshes mankind. That's the metaphor. That's the big news. But God writes his metaphors in more than ink and parchment. He writes them in time and space because he's God. And if you look at the first coming of our Messiah, there were great metaphors. He shall be born of a virgin. What's the metaphor behind that? Well, he's not the son of sinful man. He is the son of God. That's the metaphor. That's the big point. But he was literally born of a virgin. She literally had not known a man. 
Uh, he would be born in the city uh, uh, in, in Bethlehem, the city of David. Well, what's the metaphor? Uh, he's Davidic. The Davidic covenant would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's the metaphor. That's important. That's, that's 2 Samuel promises of God. But he was literally born in Bethlehem. So I am literally seeing this refreshment coming from God as literal lakes and streams flowing in what were formerly deserts. Look at verse number 17. When the poor and the needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. Just imagine your tongue sticking to the roof of your mouth right now. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness, whenever you see the wilderness in the Bible, it's referring to the desert, the wilderness of Judea. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness, the desert, cedars, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. And what is the purpose of all of this at the end times? Here it is in verse 20. That they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. This is what God wants for your marriage. He wants it to be a work of harmony that is so beautiful that people would look and they would say, that's, that, that's just not, human beings don't get together and, 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 and love one another that way. This is different. This is a work of God. This is what God wants for the local church. Human beings together in love and harmony in a way that human beings just don't put up with each other and just don't get along. It is a work of God, the hand of God. This is what God wants for your personal sanctification. That people would look at the way you live your life, the victories that you secure in Christ, and they would say, you know, that just doesn't happen. People don't break free of, of addictions and sins and problems and circumstances the way you have broken free. Habits that are impossible to break, he wants to break them. Sin leading you into impossible situations, he wants to deliver you. Don't expect it to be overnight. Don't expect it to be easy. But ask God to do something glorious that people would look and say, oh man, <laughs> clearly a God thing. Clearly a God thing. That's the way it'll be when God brings refreshment to the deserts of Israel. And I believe he will literally bring streams in the desert. So today, we consider that we are not to fear. Why? Because God is our God and He is true to His Word. He is with us. He works for us. He works in us. And you just never know where you stand. I mean, things seem bad. But He's doing a work. And a thousand years from now, what are we going to look back and see from this moment? Right now, what is Job looking back and seeing from his moments? With enemies approaching, the godless are afraid. And they should be. They may or may not have something to live for, but I'll tell you this, they have nothing to die for. That is the end for them. That is fear. That is eternal torment. For them, death begins the real problems. But the people of God have hope based on assurances that God is sovereign, that He has chosen you. And if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, God did that. 
If you've come to recognize that you're a sinner, that Jesus died for your sins, and that you can be right with God through Jesus, through trusting Him, God did that for you. He chose to work in you to give you that understanding. Christians, we need to forsake the world's idols. We need to know that there's just a nagging problem with our idols. They just don't last. (laughs) They just don't stand. They don't give meaning. They don't give support. They leave us empty. They leave us sometimes less than empty. Feeling uh, dirty and guilty. We need to embrace God, embrace His purposes, embrace His timeline. These texts were written before the exile to Babylon. Two people who would be in exile. And they stretch forward to time at the end of this age. Our God is sovereign. He is in control. So be strong. Do not be afraid. God is your God. I'm going to ask the deacons to come at this time, and we are going to celebrate the Lord's table.